0: I believe there is something special about going to the movies. Even in the midst of home theaters and 70-inch flat screens with HDTV and a gazillion gigabytes or whatever you can see on your screen, uh, there's still something special about getting the family together or going out on a date with your spouse or your loved one and going to the movies. And it's growing. Going, People going to the movies, is still growing. People are still attending movies like crazy. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with several things. I think part of it is just the idea of, the, of going in the smell of the popcorn and, and hearing the arcade off in the corner and, and the anticipation of a great film and getting your big soda and your candy. It's an escape from the world. Yeah, we went the other day with our family and thought, we'll just go to the movie, and I said, we're not getting any popcorn. Yeah, you all know what happened, right? I walked in the lobby, and I lost that battle about the time I got in the lobby. And, you know, the tickets for a family of five was like $35. Popcorns and drinks was like $35. But we still do it. We go. We, we enjoy getting away. And, and I think even some still enjoy my home theater with my 70-inch flat screen because we blockade ourselves in, and it's two hours of escape, of getting away from this world. I believe movies speak to us. They touch your heart and your mind in special ways. They make you think. They make you laugh. They make you cry. And so I believe movies have a great, strong way of teaching us. If we're willing to ask the question, God, what can I learn in this movie? I believe movies are modern day parables. Parables are modern day stories which help connect to Christ centered living. Parables help us connect with God's plans and God's teachings for our lives. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus used that method in teaching in Scripture. Jesus used parables. If you just start thumbing through the New Testament and looking at what are some of the different parables that Jesus used that tied to modern day. For instance, you'll see the parable of the sower where he talks about scattering seed. Why did he use that story? Because he was in a farming community, and people in a farming community would have understood and would have connected when he said, now here's the point I want to understand about my kingdom, about the kingdom of God. The parable of net, about casting casting your nets out in the water and how you catch fish, and and then what to do as they separate the good from the bad. Again, what did he do? A a modern day story because people in that culture were used to the fishing community and they understood the idea of casting out your net and bringing in the fish. And so then Jesus tied a spiritual, a kingdom-centered education or teaching with that. Or the parable of the lost sheep. He's the one that told the story about the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and about how one got away and how the shepherd left the 99 to go find the one. Why would he tie in and draw in on sheep? Because again, in that community, they understood sheep herding. They understood shepherds. They understood what that meant to take care of sheep. And then he tied kingdom principles, Christ-like thinking to that modern day parable. Or if you take the parable of the workers in the vineyard, they would understand that. When Jesus told the story about getting some in the morning and some in the middle of the day and some in the afternoon and some in late hours to come and be workers in the vineyard field, they would have got that. They understood vines and vineyards and grapes growing on that because that was part of their culture. Modern day stories connecting people to a bigger principle Kingdom principle, kingdom mindset, Christ centered thinking. So, over the next few weeks, we're going to use movies as our modern day parables. We're going to look at some movies and try to understand what is God's bigger purpose that maybe we can connect with His kingdom, with His teaching, with His thoughts. Today, we begin with the movie Insurgent. How many people have seen it? Just a few. How many people have seen Divergent, the first one? More, okay. So I'll give you a warning. I'm not going to blow out the movie. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm not going to give it away. All right, but we're going to highlight some things in here. Insurgent is the second movie based on best-selling author Christian, uh, a best-selling author who's a Christian. Her name is Veronica Ross Divergent Trilogy, and she is a Christian. Although this movie is not such a Christian movie, but she has Christian principles, the first in the series revolved around a pseudo-communistic society where each person is assigned to a different classification for the contribution of society. A few people defy classification, and those individuals are known as divergents and considered a great threat to the society. The second film, Insurgent, continues this theme as the Divergents are on the run and being hunted by the Eurydite faction. Shailene Woodley plays Trish Pryor opposite her love interest. His name is Four, played by Theo James. And the movie takes place in a post-apocalyptic Chicago. Get that picture in your mind. And like previous films, Tris and Four lead divergent outcasts against Eurydite. But this time, they must form an alliance with various factions in order to try to overcome and defeat Eurydite. Now, Jeannie Matthews, the Eurydite leader played by Kate Winslet, is kidnapping Divergent. She's using them to discover their secret. She puts them underneath the process, and I won't tell you about the process, puts them in the process trying to understand why are they divergent and, and how do they function And Tris is believed to hold the key to this mystery. So Insurgent builds to a very nice ending. Some of the more gripping moments, though, I think, point to the next movie. They literally leave you hanging, going, I can't wait to see the next one whenever it comes out. Now, even though this book is written by an evangelical Christian, I want to give you a warning. There is nothing absolutely nothing in the movie that hints at God other than the presence of irony, which is very strong in the movie. God is never mentioned, nor do any of the characters exhibit spirituality or exhibit a God-centered life. However, the theme of the film, I think, clearly comes for Veronica's Ross faith. And here's the theme, in my understanding of this movie, that God made us for a purpose and that purpose cannot be defined by society or government, but by God's grace alone. And as you watch that movie, if you, or if you have seen it, I think you'll start seeing that, that wow, we're all created for a purpose. So today, I want us to see in God's Word, what is one of the purposes He has for us. If you're a Christ follower, if you've confessed Jesus as your Savior, and you've accepted the message of of forgiveness. You've accepted the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the cross. The words that we're going to discuss today, the scriptures that we're going to dive in today are written directly to you if you're in Christ. They are words that are written that we who are in Christ cannot ignore. They are words that are written that we cannot say, well, that doesn't apply to me. We cannot say, well, that's for my mom or that's for my dad or that's for my preacher. They apply to us if we are in Christ. And I say that because if you are here today and you say, I'm not sure about this Christ thing. I'm kind of investigating it. I'm here because I came with my wife, or I'm here because I came with my husband, or I'm here because a friend invited me, but I'm not really sure if I buy into all this Jesus stuff. These words are not written to you yet. But you get a chance to hear what Christ's kingdom looks like. And you get a chance to hear that if one day, Lord willing, you say, you know what, I do accept Jesus as my Savior, then these words are written to you, and it is the call for every Christian of how we're supposed to live our lives and things we're supposed to do. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We continue in the Sermon on the Mount. We have been in a sermon series called When, we ended it last week, that started with this, with this um, Sermon on the Mount, and it began with the Beatitudes, And so we're going to continue walking right on through this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, by looking at these words from Jesus. And today, this is what Jesus says to his disciples and those who were gathered around on that mountainside as he was teaching. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you see the Beatitudes. Elements of lifestyle that we're to choose. Meekness. Being a peacemaker. Being poor in spirit. Comforting those who mourn. Those are character qualities of a Christian. As we get into this idea of salt and light, this is actions of a Christian. This is what we are supposed to do, discovering our purpose. And the purpose I see here is that we are supposed to be people of influence. People who influence others towards the kingdom. People who influence others towards Jesus Christ. People who influence other people to live for Jesus Christ. In ancient times, salt was a necessity of life. Now for us, salt, for the most part, we use it just a couple of ways. It's maybe in a little glass bottle or a plastic bottle that sits on your counter or on your table and you put it on your food. You might use salt, especially if you're in a business where you have to clear lots in the wintertime and use salt to clear the snow and the ice. Maybe you throw some on your driveway. But for us, we don't know much about salt. Maybe it's in that little blue bottle that says Morton's on it. It has a little white lid. It has a little silver top. You peel back and you pour some in. You need a tablespoon or or a teaspoon. Or for some people, it's, well, I just need some. Put it upon your hand. All that's enough. Throw it in. That's usually our experiences of salt in our society today. For a few, maybe you've been out to the salt mines in Nebraska and seen something like that. But for most of us, for most of us, it's salt to be used for something simple like cooking or Taking care of salt on your roads. So, let me give a little bit of a lesson about salt. Many societies, it was highly valued. They actually used salt for money. The English word salary is derived from the Latin word salarium, which refers to the payments made to a Roman soldier with salt. Sometimes that's how they would receive their payment. Instead of coins or cash, they'd actually pay them with salt. Herod's temple had a chamber of salt for ceremonial use. It was so important that they locked it up in a chamber and kept the salt and said that's only to be used for certain ceremonial or worship activities. Whenever a city was defeated, the custom was to throw salt out in a city, meaning that the city had been separated from its past. It was a form of celebration. Elisha used salt to purify the water of Jericho. And then a normal procedure when a baby was born, according to Ezra, was that they would rub salt on the baby. Could you imagine being in the hospital and little Johnny is born? Look how cute Johnny is. Hey, give me the salt. Rub him down. That That was part of the process. It was a very normal thing in that culture. Salt was gathered in Palestine from along the seashore or inland lakes. It was very much a center of their culture. Salt was used for seasoning. I mean, In Bible times, and still today, salt was used to season their food. Who likes to eat food without salt? Most of us want it salted. In our home, sometimes the argument or the debate or the thing I jump on my kids about is your salt in your food, you haven't even tasted it. <clears throat> A lot of people do that, they grab their salt, first thing they do, their plate, let's salt on my food, make sure it has flavoring. In Leviticus and Ezra, salt was used to flavor the offerings and the sacrifices. It says all who would present themselves, a living sacrifice, holding acceptable to God according to Romans, and it's referring to a salt of righteousness that comes from our Savior. In order for our lives to be a living sacrifice for God, they must be preserved and seasoned with the righteousness of Christ. It was used as a preservative, see, to preserve their food. They didn't have refrigeration like we have. They didn't, they didn't have freezers like we have. They, all they had was salt, and so they would put their meat into the salt to preserve their food or to preserve things they wanted to keep from spoiling. Salt was also a symbol of friendship. So how was salt a symbol of friendship? It it, it resolved, uh, revolved around a relationship In Numbers it said, "Is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. That salt was used in a covenant relationship and signified a friendship. So salt represented a relationship. It represented hospitality that cemented a friendship. There is a saying among the Arabs that says, There is salt between us. Which means there is a relationship between us. There is a covenant between us. There is a friendship between us. And then so Jesus goes on and says, You are... You are the salt of the earth. Talking to his disciples. What did Jesus mean by this statement? It is the silent witness of influence by the Christian believer. It is the influence that you have over other people's lives to be able to season and preserve for eternal life. And all of us have an opportunity to do that. Christ is saying, let your influence season people's lives for the kingdom of God that we weren't put here just on this earth just to live and to be happy and to have a job and to make money and to die. We were lived to be salt, to influence people in the kingdom of God. Salt changes things. Ever notice how a little bit of salt just seasoned just right can affect an entire pot of beans, but you put in too much, you can all of a sudden ruin the entire pot of beans? It only takes a little salt to flavor a whole community, a little salt to change a workplace, a little salt to change a, a whole neighborhood. The whole issue of salt is seasoning the influence, you might say. Like someone said, the salt is no good if it never leaves a salt shaker. It is only a decoration on a kitchen table. For some of us in Christ, we live inside of the container. We live inside of the container called the church. Oh, I'm part of the church. I go to church. I make sure I'm there on Sunday morning. We live inside the container called a small group or a growth group that we call them. Oh yeah, I was at my growth group. I make it every single week. We sit around, we talk about the Bible, we pray together. That's good stuff. For some of us, we are salt that lives inside the container of doing good works. Oh yeah, I'm signed up for that kids camp. I'm one of the 77 who are going to help. I'm doing something. the salt that Jesus is referring to is going out and rubbing shoulders with people. The salt that Jesus is referring to is going out and getting to know people who do not know Jesus. The salt that Jesus is referring to is people who want to get to know non-Christians. See, we deny the salt function. We fail to mingle with people who are lost. We deny the function of the salt when we fail to be kind. We fail to be merciful. When we fail to be a peacemaker, we deny the salt function. And what happens is the kingdom and the principles of God don't spread as God desires them to spread. We are, not a draw, we are not to draw away from society. We are to be in the world. We are to live in the world but not be of the world. What happens too much is we as Christians draw in our own community and then we don't interact with those who are not in Christ. And if we as salt don't rub against those who have no flavor, those who are perishing, those who don't have Jesus, then who will? That's the call Jesus is bringing here. Jesus said, you are the salt. He is isn't emphatic. He didn't say, you are the earth. He didn't say, you might. He didn't say, you ought to be. He said, you are the salt. You are the salt. We are either salt or we are of the world. We are either salt or we are earth. And Jesus is making the comparison that we are the salt and the kingdom who does not know God. They're the earth. And we are to enter into that kingdom who does not know God and bring the kingdom of God to them. He said, That's our job. G C. Campbell Morgan said nicely when he wrote, Jesus looking out over the multitudes of his day, saw the corruption, the distraction, the destruction of life at every point, its breakup, its spoilation, and because of his love of the multitudes, he knew the thing that they needed most was the salt in order that the corruption should be arrested. The salt enters into the world that is broken to bring goodness of God. Salt witnessing is about showing true friendship, showing the friendship of Jesus. Love is the main ingredient in true friendship. When love fills the heart, it will overflow to others. The love is, a, this love is broad as the universe, it's harmony of that of the angel workers, cherishing a heart, it sweetens the entire life and sheds its blessing all around us. It's the only way people come to know Jesus is by the church being the salt and influencing people towards Christ. Salt is all about influence. If you're taking notes today, I'd encourage you to write down on your, on your note card there just the word influence. That's what salt does. Influence, it's a silent, silent partner. But let's talk about the other item that Jesus talks about here. He talks about light. Light is a form of energy. It's always moving. When light energy ceases to move, it's because it has been absorbed by matter by matter. And then it's no longer light. Light has been a symbol of divine presence. And Jesus said that he was the light of the world. And now get these scriptures that Jesus lays out to us in several instances throughout scripture. John eight twelve says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light. Of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Where does our source come from? It's from Jesus. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength and my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Even the psalmist understood that if I'm going to be a light that shines for God, it comes from the Lord. In other words, our power source is us staying connected to the Lord. As we're connected to the Lord, then our light shines. People are living in fear, I think, today in our society because they don't know the light. And it's our job to be the light so that we reflect the light. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So when we know Jesus, we know of the cleansing, we're to reflect that light and bring that to other people. We know Jesus is the true light. And we are reflectors of that light the question is what does it mean to be jesus's light look at what it says in john 1 there was a man sent from god whose name was john this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe he was not that light but he was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world john knew john knew i'm not the light but I bring the light. I reflect the light. Look at verse 4. It says, In Him was life, and life was the light of men. John's life came by knowing Jesus. And John knew I'm a reflector of that light. What does light do? If we're going to be light, it's active. What does it do in our society? Light exposes darkness. Darkness. Darkness is expelled as soon as you turn the lights on. If I turned all the lights on in this room, we know we're sitting in darkness, but we know that the darkness is gone the minute you turn lights on. People are not aware of darkness they live in until they see the light. And so we bring the light of Christ. We reflect that. The question is Does my life help people see Christ more brightly, more clearly? Light serves as a guide. A couple times this year, I've had a chance to be on an airplane, and I'm thankful when I'm landing at nighttime that, that that runway is lit up with light so that the airplane pilot can see where are we going. I'm thankful that when I'm driving my car at nighttime, and I turn my headlights on and they work so that I can see the road before me. You ever do that where you're driving down the road, and it's like, okay, there's no one here, and you hardly turn your lights off real quick to see what it's like? You guys ever do that? Now, come on now. You all have done that. Come on. I know you have. It kind of freaks you out. You're like, okay, it's real bright. You turn off, whoa, turn okay, the lights back on because you're like, the road's right there, you know? We like light. <coughs> it guides, it points us in the right direction. That's our job. So Jesus is saying our job. Our job is to be light, to guide, to point, to reflect people into the right direction, which is to know the light, which is Jesus Christ. Light's to be seen. There's nothing and there's no such thing as a secret Christian. I, I, it drives me crazy when people say, "Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you know, it's kind of a personal matter." No, it's not. That is a lie from Satan. It's not a personal matter. Yes, it's a personal relationship, but it's a public matter that we are to shine the light of Christ. Light shines not so much that people may see the light as they as that they may see others things because of the light light shines in a way that we point people to christ now the scripture refers here makes a statement that to us is a little bit foreign i would think and it says that you are light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden neither do people put a light or a lamp put it under a bowl we got to understand the culture of that time to understand what that talked about. Because most of us would be like, Man, I've never put a light on our bowl. I mean, anyone here ever say, well, I'm going to put a light? Unless it's for an illustration, maybe about church camp or a kid's camp or vacation, Bible school. Most of them have never said, well, I'm just taken a light and put it underneath the bowl to see what happens. Or that's how I live my life. So let me give you a little bit of background on that. Palestinian homes were generally dark. Solid walls, maybe one small window. Dirt floor. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have bulbs like we have now, and so their light consisted of a lamp, which was a bowl that held oil, and they put a wick inside of it. And so they would light that wick, and then that wick then, with that bowl, they'd put it up on a stand so that the light would be up high so they could see around their house. Now, the challenge that they faced was, how do I light the wick? See, back then in their culture, they didn't have matches. They didn't have BIC lighters. Hey, get that BIC lighter, Let's just relight it. And so they had to keep the light burning. But the challenge they would face is, okay, it's up on the lamp and now we have to go out into the market, or we have to go out in the town, or we have to go out and work in the fields. What are we going to do with the bowl, with the wick in it as it's burning because it's unsafe to leave it there, it could fall over and catch fire. So they would take that bowl, they would take it off the stand and set it off in a safe spot and they would kind of put a bowl over it, protect it, but just in a way that it could still keep burning but it would not be able to create any kind of fire or any kind of problem. They would leave their home, when they came back then, they would take that cistern or that bowl off of it, they'd put it back up on a lampstand, and it's still burning. That wick is still burning. So then every now and then they'd just add some oil, so that would be a continuous thing until the wick was all used up. Then they had have to find a way to light. And many times, at that time, they would go to a neighbor and say, hey, would you help us light? Can I light off of your wick? One neighbor helping another. Well, that thought now... Think about the movie for a second. In a movie at the age of 16, Insurgent, one must figure out which faction they're part of. There's a process for this. But once they have their faction... That's the group they associated with. That's the group they lived with. That group became like family to them. That was their community. There were five groups. There was Dauntless, the Brave. There was Amity. They were known as the Peaceful. There was erudite the Intelligent. Abnegation, the Selfless. Candor was known as the Honest. And then there was one more group, but they weren't really a faction group. They were factionless. They didn't fit into any of them, and so they belonged to no faction. And then you have some, a few who could fit into or have a bit of all the factions, and they were known as Divergence. Trish Pryor love and love interest Four were Divergence. They discovered their purpose in the movie. Now, I won't ruin it for you. They discovered their purpose. We as Divergence, how do we interact with these five other factions and also the faction list? I want to tell you, we live in a society that we would not so clearly say, well, there's factions, but we can see factions. We can see division in our culture. We can see brokenness. We can see that we live in a very fractured society. We see it every day in things like race wars, economic challenges, government battles, divorce, greed, same-sex marriage, murder, abortion, lying, cheating, stealing, selfishness, the list goes on. We see it in our society every single day. What are we supposed to do? We don't take our light of Christ and put it under a bowl. We go and shine it in the culture that we live in. We go and shine it in the culture that we live in. We go and be salt in this broken society. And let me just tell you, because it's the hot topic of the week same sex marriage. And you can get in on debates all you want, write it on social media all you want. I'm just going to tell you, it's not going to change in our society that people know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It won't change. And it will continue to go down that road and there will continue to be division until we're unified in Jesus Christ. Jesus says you are salt. Jesus says you are light. We are to dispel darkness. The issue with the light is to be able to bring light into the darkness and that's our job. We don't hide our lives in a house. We don't hide our lives underneath a bowl. We don't hide our lives by saying, well, it's just a personal matter. No, we go out and live out our faith so that we are salt, that we influence people by our kindness and by our words and by our deeds and by our actions. But then we also influence by our light, that we influence by our testimony. Our light is that we speak up and we share. Here's who Jesus is. Here's why I believe in Jesus. Here's how Jesus has changed my life. Here's how I make it in this world by walking with Jesus. There's some differences to be aware of. Salt is a silent witness. Salt you put on a food, it's very small. We have a silent witness. People watch what we do. People watch how we behave. People watch. How does the church interact? How do you who claim to be Christ, who claim to follow Christ, how do you live your life? It's a silent witness, but we can influence. And then light is a public thing. Light is a thing where you have to open your mouth. Light is a thing where you do let people know who Christ is. Now, you don't have to give a Bible study to be salt. Your influence, your peace, your meekness comes through in the way you live your life. On the other hand, light has a different type of effect. Light is very visible. It's very active. It's very moving. You share your faith with others. People need to see salt or see light and experience salt. They need to see how your acquaintance is seasoning in your life. They begin to ask questions. Maybe, hey, tell me about your life. Tell me how you do parenting. Tell me why you do things different. And there's opportunities then to reflect Christ. We're mirrors, That's what we are. We're mirrors. We're mirrors that we look at Christ. And as we look at Christ, as we follow Christ, then we should reflect out to our society. And as we look at our society, we should be a mirror that then reflects them to Christ. Not to look at me. Not to look at who I am, but to say to your society, I am who I am, because I keep my eyes on him, and to be able to say to him, to say to our Lord, Lord, I want to influence this society, and so Lord, I look to you, and as I look to you, then Lord, I want you to reflect so that the society will see who I am. You do that by three simple things Being in God's Word. You want to reflect Christ, you've got to be in God's Word. I say this over and over and over and over again in our church. If you're not in God's Word, you're going to starve to death. And if you're not in God's Word, you're not going to be a light reflector of Christ to the society that needs us to be salt and to be light. It's got to be daily. Daily being in God's Word. Prayer. Prayer to be actively involved in your life, to be praying, to be a people of prayer. And then Christian community, we need what we do together on a Sunday and what we do in groups. We need that, but that's not to be our salt shaker that we go and we hide in. That's where we go and we get energized, we get refilled, and we go out living in this world to be salt and to be light. The time has come, church. The time has come for us to be salt of the earth. The, the time has come for us to be Light of the world. There is no time like today for us to live out these calls, these words of Jesus Christ, to be salt and to be light. Now, there's one warning in Scripture, and I hate to close with this thought, but there's a warning that we've got to be aware of. Jesus said, When you're the salt of the earth, if salt loses its saltiness, how can we be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Don't lose your saltiness, don't let your light go dim. Stay walking with Christ. Walk close with Christ so that you will remain salty and that your light will shine brightly. You are the salt and the light of this world.